throughout this month, we are going to be looking at a very special passage from the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be looking in depth at 1 Corinthians 13, often referred to as the love chapter. And we are taking this look for a very special reason. This one chapter addresses the major need in the prophet Jonah's life that was lacking. It caused him to be bitter, angry, and simply rebellious against God. He lacked love. So we're going to take a deep look at what Paul had to write about the issue of love. I want to set some context for you uh, as we take a look at this passage of Scripture that we'll be looking at today. Corinth itself was an important city of trade. It lay on the southeastern end of Greece. Uh, where it was, it was a port city, and it was a center of trade, and a lot of folks who traveled from the east going to Rome would come through Corinth. It was very much like any major mega city today on a port in our coast or the coast around the world. A lot of things going along. A lot of people gathered together in uh, one particular spot. And Dr. Kim Riddlebogger, in his commentary, wrote that when Paul came to the city of Corinth, he was badly in need of a break. He had encountered fierce opposition from the Jews in nearby Philippi, and then once again in Thessalonica, and even in Berea. Paul also had a difficult time in Athens, so it's no wonder that when he came, in the, early on in the letter, Paul recalls that when he first arrived in Corinth, he came in weakness, fear, and trembling. It's in 1 Corinthians 2.3. Because of the lack of persecution that he, pers- that he experienced in Corinth, according to the book of Acts, he was free from it here. He was able to spend about 18 months in Corinth. We also know from the book of Acts that God spoke to him as he began his ministry there, telling Paul in a vision that that God had many people in this city yet to come to faith. Friends, Paul came to love the people of this pagan background, and they were of a pagan background. They needed a lot of teaching about faith and what it meant to be godly and to follow the Lord. Uh, Here, is a picture of the ruins of the Agora. Now, the Agora was a place of public gathering. It was a marketplace. It was a place where you could find political debate. It was a place people came together to hang out. It was a place of philosophical discussion. It was the hub of the city. And it was most likely in the Agora that Paul did much of his preaching that led to people coming to the faith. In Christ. Here is, are the ruins of the temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. Uh, and uh, as the goddess of love, you can imagine the worship services there would be very different than what we experience here. Uh, Corinth abounded in pagan religions, and particularly important, not just the Greek pantheon of gods, there were also the gods of the Mystery religions, two important, Dionysus and Sibeli. 
uh, both gods of Phrygia that were adopted into the Greek culture. Uh, they were fertility gods. Um, Dionysus was also the god of wine. So his worship services were often dealt with through drunkenness and sexual immorality as well as civility. It was this aspect of the Corinthian converts' lives that would come back to haunt them often. Paul had to address the issue more than once in the book. Now, the book's reason for existence has been spelled out wonderfully by Leon Morris, a faithful man of God of Australia, a great teacher and expounder of the word who recently went on to be with the Lord. He said the immediate occasion of the epistle was the letter Paul had received from the Corinthian church for which a reply was necessary. But what mattered much more to Paul was clearly the news that had come to him independently of the letter. It had come to him from members of Chloe's family who were traveling through Ephesus. And from then he found out there were disquieting uh, irregularities in the conduct of all the believers at Corinth. Paul was troubled primarily with the tendency of the part on some believers to make the break with pagan society as indefinite as possible. In other words, they didn't want to get too far away from their roots. And Morris wrote, the church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it not ought to be. By the time Paul wrote to the church from Ephesus, it was in dire straits. There was division on almost every level, every single aspect of church life. They argued about who were the best preachers, who were the best leaders. They argued about morality. Uh, They argued about what do we do with someone who's out of the will of God. They argued about spiritual giftedness, which is ironic because when Paul opens the letter, he says... I am so glad that God has gifted you in so many ways. But in those many ways of being gifted, they now had come to a place of being divided over the spiritual gifts. This chapter is often seen as a digression. Chapters 12 and 14 are dealing with spiritual gifts. And some people say, for whatever reason, Paul got distracted. Folks, this is not a digression. He put it in the middle of chapter 12 and 14 on spiritual gifts because spiritual gifts were causing trouble in the church. So we're going to take a look at the first three verses of the the chapter. And I'd ask you to stand as we hear the word of God, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. And I really want you to listen carefully to what Paul had to say to this church. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In this one little text, the Apostle Paul wrote that the most spectacular actions meant nothing without love. 
the, the most amazing, wonderful, should be awe-inspiring things are nothing without love. And we need to understand very clearly today, folks, we have got to grab hold of this. The church in America, and as we're praying, as revival fires seem to be breaking out, maybe we understand more and more, like the Corinthians, we must understand the crucial importance of love in our Christian lives. Folks, this isn't an add-on. This is identifying who we are. Now, how are we going to do that? How do we come to truly understand how important love is to the Christian life? Well, Paul has done us a favor. He's given us three possibilities of Christians doing things without love, and we want to learn from them. The examples of lives without love. And my prayer is that we will hear today and that we will commit ourselves to a love that is true and deep and powerful. So to begin with our first example, without love, we are loud and empty noise. We are loud and empty noise. And often, how should I say this? Often, church people without love are not just loud noise, they are loud, angry noise. And we need to understand this. Now, Paul began his discussion by zeroing in on a spiritual gift cherished by some of the Corinthians. The fact that Paul begins by saying, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, may give us a strong emphasis that this right here, this was probably the most favored gift in Corinth. It was the one people wanted to have. It's the one people boasted about having. This was the gift. And it's a gift that still receives a great deal of emphasis among different bodies of Christian faith. Now, I want to say something right off the bat, and I'm going to repeat myself in a little bit for emphasis. I am not what is known as a cessationist. Cessationists are a group of people who believe that all of the miraculous, wonderful, spectacular gifts mentioned in the Bible died out as soon as the canon of Scripture was closed. And their argument, in part, says they no longer needed these protections spectacular movements. It is also argued from perspective of a passage in this chapter, and when we get there, I will deal with why I believe it is a very, very faulty interpretation. I believe that whatever God has done, he is free to do among his people at any point in time. And for me to, for me to tell God, you can't do that anymore, seems to me to be the height of arrogance. So Paul was not disparaging these gifts. He is not saying they're not real. He's not saying that they're not valuable to the body of Christ. What he was fighting was the idea that somehow a spectacular gift takes on an importance that is even greater than the importance of love. So let's take a quick look at this word love. Many of you will already know because you've heard sermons before. This is that good word for love called agape in its noun form. It's agape love. Its verbal form is agapao, to love. 
And uh, Morris points out that this was a word that wasn't used much in Greek society. It, occasionally you would find it in a few texts, but very rarely they focused on other words for love instead. And so it seems that Christians take this word that was so little used by the pagan society and they incorporated it and used it as their characteristic word for love. Folks, this word that is rarely used in writings outside of the Scripture in the New Testament, it is used 116 times, 75 of which are found in the writings of Paul. And Morris wrote wonderfully, it is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God that who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought whether or not they are worthy of the love. It proceeds from the very nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the one loved. The Christian who has experienced God's love for him while he was yet a sinner has been transformed by this experience. Now he sees people as those for whom Christ died, the object of God's love, and therefore the objects of the love of God's people. So Paul writes, even if a believer excelled in miraculously speaking in languages they had never learned, whether it be human languages or the languages of the angels in heaven. And Paul is, I do not believe Paul is actually differentiating on type. He's just saying, basically, any kind of language that is possible, that it could be seen as miraculous. He said, if that person does not have love, he or she just becomes one more noise in an already noisy world. So why did Paul use this very vivid image of a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal? Well, David Pryor suggests this is Paul's rather oblique kind of hinting at uh, the devotees of Greek mystery cults at Corinth, those who worship Dionysus, uh, god of nature, and Sibele, goddess of wild animals. And he said, no doubt, the streets of Corinth resounded with the noisy gongs and clashing cymbals, which were a feature of such worshipers. A gong was a piece of uh, copper, a cymbal, a single-tone instrument, incapable of producing a melody. Both were used in the mystery religions, either to invoke the god or to drive away demons or to rouse the worshipers. They were neither melodious nor capable of producing harmony. Both beat out a heavy monotone and caused as much offense as constantly barking dogs. Let me give you an example. And I'm going to let you know, you can thank Jay Rustin for this, because I asked him for some help if he had it. I don't particularly have a pair of symbols. And he said, I would love to help out. So, imagine, uh, symbols, while this is a classroom symbol, symbols play a very important part in orchestras. Uh, they can help 
an orchestral piece dramatically. But that's the point. Cymbals are a percussion instrument. They are meant to play along with other instruments. The instruments can actually do the melody, and they just kind of help with the beat. So listen now. Whoops. That's not bad. That's not too bad. But imagine. If I do this through the whole sermon. I already heard one verbal no, and I'm seeing a lot of no's on faces as well. One set isn't bad. But imagine walking through Corinth and almost everywhere you go, you hear the clanging of the cymbals. Volunteers, would you rise? Okay, you can stop. I have never given people permission to make noise in church in my life other than maybe in an amen, which is kind of a futile effort in a Baptist church. Uh, Now you get it. (laughs) Yeah, not everybody heard that. Uh, The most eloquent you get, the most eloquent, verbally exciting gift without love is just noise. Now keep in mind, These Corinthian Christians were born, reared, and worshipped in the city of Corinth. Every time they would hear those symbols going off, calling people to worship, it would remind them of the false worship they had been part of. They would know that doesn't mean a thing. It isn't real. It isn't true. And Paul says... Verbally exciting gifts without love are just noise. Even if you can speak tongues in an amazing way, if you don't have love, it's just noise. Folks, we can claim a super spirituality and just be irritating sound. Our bragging on the spiritual gifts that set us apart from others quickly become empty. Well, you may have the gift of service, but I have the gift. We get it. Our words flowing out of hearts of pride. Look what I can do. Look what I can say. Betray the very purpose the gifts of the Spirit are given for, to draw the body of Christ together. Even understandable words. We don't even have to worry about speaking in tongues of men or angels. Understandable words that we use all of the time, religious words used all of the time, incessantly, can drive people away. I've known people who punctuate every sentence, every sentence with praise the Lord. I got up this morning, praise the Lord. And my car started, praise the Lord. And I made it to work on time, praise the Lord. And I had a great cup of coffee at work, praise the Lord. And just as just to shuffle things up. And and my boss was nice to me. Hallelujah. And, and I'm feeling so good. I'm so blessed. And folks, that constant, folks, look at the Bible. Nobody talked like that in the Bible. 
And yet we somehow think we are super spiritual if we're using all of these wonderful and great words. But sometimes they drive away people if they are perceived of as super spirituality. I've told you before, and I, I've told you far too many preacher secrets along the way, but I've told you this is a Danny secret. I am highly suspicious of people who use religious words too much. Now, we have some beautiful words. Praise the Lord is an amazing phrase. Hallelujah is just a way of saying, you praise the Lord. Join with me. Literally, you praise the Lord. I'm blessed has significance, but not when it just becomes jargon that we learn to speak. Folks, what has to happen here, what has to happen here, we must realize that the world is looking for more than an exciting gift. I believe that a lost world is not drawn to our religious jargon. I've told you, and I'm not a really great fan of church marquees. I've driven by church marquees that believe the people who put them up said, oh, we're giving a witness to the Lord in our community. I've driven by church signs. I have a PhD in theology, folks. I am a, a systematic theologian by bent and by learning. And I've driven by church signs, and five minutes after I've driven by, I'm still thinking, what did that mean? And having studied theology for a great bulk of my life, if I don't get it, the average Joe driving by won't understand. Our words can mean nothing. The world, what it, what it needs to see, what it needs to hear is our love in action. They need to see that the body of Christ, we love each other. We need to see our love in action. We need to move. So the spectacular, if it's just loud without love, it's just noise. Then we look at the second example, which is even more grasping at our hearts. Without love, we we are nothing, even with extraordinary powers. Without love, we are nothing. How do I put that? Well, Paul is trying to make a point. And he's trying to make a point that goes to the very heart of human existence. Uh, Folks, every one of us want to think we're significant. Every one of us want to believe we're doing something in this world. But Paul made it clear. Paul noted that power gifts did not make anyone a somebody. Power gifts did not make anybody a superstar. The power gifts he mentions here were prophetic words. And the idea of the prophetic word is God has given you a word for somebody. For the, it may be the congregation. It may be for an individual person. He talks about uh, the being able to understand all mysteries Mysteries in the Bible talk about things that have been hidden by God that will be revealed to his people eventually. And then he talks about a supernatural faith that can defy nature itself and say, mountain, 
move, and it will move. Now, there's a great deal of hyperbole here. Paul is exaggerating. One very important exaggeration. Nobody, nobody ever will understand all of the mysteries of God. And please notice that Paul isn't saying, if you, he's saying, if I could prophesy, if I knew all the mysteries, if I, he's trying to drive a point home, no one can know. Folks, he is God. He is God. I had somebody hand me once a a booklet. It was basically a, a school notepad, and they handed it to me, and he said, here, Read this. It'll explain everything you need to know about God. Okay. I took it. I said, thank you very much. And in my brain, I'm thinking. Again, remember my poker face I said about having? In my brain, I'm thinking, kid, you have no idea how many questions I've got. And so here it is. This is hyperbole. Then... Moving a mountain, there's a subtle difference. Do you remember Jesus made this statement about moving, telling the mountains to move and cast in the sea? But with Jesus, he's saying, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, if you utilize the faith you have, then great possibilities are there. Now, I would let you know that idea of moving mountains was a, a common phrase in first century Palestine to say, the impossible can be done with faith in God. Here, it seems to be more of, look what I can do. God loves me so much, he's empowered me. Just, Just watch what my prayers can accomplish. And it's about pride. Now, Paul said bluntly, I can do all these things, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. Now, hold on, and here's, I'm going to repeat myself. I told you I would in just a moment. I suspect that we have a rather naive expectation about what miracles can accomplish. Again, I am not a cessationist. I believe God can do amazing things, and I, and I believe maybe one of the reasons we don't see more is we have lost that sense that our God is still a powerful, awesome God. But in the 70s, the movement began to grow, and its emphasis was on power evangelism. The basic idea was the reason evangelism is failing in this country, the reason we're not seeing thousands upon thousands of people come to Christ is our evangelism has no power behind it. They're not seeing all of what they could be. And the emphasis was to reach the land, the church needed to move into the miraculous signs and wonders that would grab the attention of the world, let them know God is God, and move them to faith. Uh, The movement took off. Some saw it as the third wave of the charismatic movement. Now again, I am not a cessationist. I have prayed for people that we were quite certain were about to go meet the Lord, and they recovered. Not through any efforts of the doctor. They were touched and they were healed. I have seen lives restored. I have seen people who have been uh, released from bondage. 
I believe that God can do whatever he chooses to do, but I need to tell you something. I clearly remember thinking as a young Christian teenager how great it would have been to live and be one of Jesus' disciples in the first century. Not one of the 12. I wasn't that arrogant. But, yeah, if I could have just been among the crowds that followed him, I thought it would... It would have been so much easier to see what they saw, to understand the miracles they saw, to hear what he did and see what he did. It would drive every bit of doubt out of my life. It would just be so much easier. And then somewhere along the line, as I started reading the Bible more carefully, 5,000 people were fed by Jesus miraculously. And when he said, if you really want to follow me, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You need to really commit to follow me. They walked away from him. The vast majority of people who saw Jesus do miracles walked away from him. The crowd that called out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday by Good Friday are screaming out, crucify him. Now, just in case you think, oh, it couldn't have been the same crowd. Okay, if it weren't, where were the ones crying Hosanna? Why weren't they there to call for his release? I believe they were comprised very much of the same people. Why? Because Jesus wasn't turning out to be what they wanted. I remind you that the disciples who walked with him day in and day out for about three years we're all filled with doubt. When we call Thomas, the doubting Thomas, it's not fair because none of them believed in the resurrection. Not until they saw the risen Lord. And John, at least, he had to see the grave clothes. So all these people who witnessed miracles and yet he still struggled. I also have to remind you that the vast majority of people in biblical times never saw a miracle. They tended to happen in pockets of events. The exodus, uh, the going into Canaan to take the land, those kind of things. Obviously, Jesus. Most of the prophets of Israel did not experience miracles. You've got Elijah and Elisha, but they were different from anybody else anyway. And if I haven't convinced you about the problem, let me remind you what Paul said. If I do the spectacular and have not love, I am nothing. Paul worked spectacular things, but he also worked out of great and mighty love. You see, folks, we must understand that it is the love experienced and shared through Christ that defines us. It is the love experienced and then shared through Christ that gives us our identity. We are Christians, and we love the Lord, and we love you, and this will be our defining moment. I believe we can see wonderful works of power, and in the context of love, they may result in in amazing results. But the world, again, is waiting to see our love. 
above anything else. The lost need to know that they are loved by God Almighty. They need to see that God's children love them enough to be in their lives, to be sharing their faith, to be helping whenever they can. And we need to know that we love each other. For without this, all of the the bells and whistles and all the wow moments and all the exciting times, those mountaintop experiences, and I love mountaintop experiences, but without love, they're empty demonstrations. So we come to our final example. Without love, our generosity and sacrifice have no gain. Without love, our generosity and sacrifice have no gain. And different translations treat it differently. Some say, I gain nothing. Some says, it benefits me nothing. But this is the heart. When Paul wrote these words, Paul concluded that these things alone are of no personal benefit. And listen to what he said. This is not simple, shabby stuff. He says, I could give everything I have away to the poor. And the way it's stated in the text, it gives you the idea that he's doling out small gifts to reach as many people as he possibly can till finally he has nothing left to his name. He says, I could willingly suffer martyrdom. I could lay down my life for Jesus. I could take up the cross and die for him. And then he says, but without love, it has no benefit for me. Without love, they would be meaningless gestures. Now, true, if I give my money away to the poor that they might have food, the poor are going to have food. They're going to have life. It's going to benefit them. Somebody help them. If I sacrifice myself, there may be someone somewhere who looks at that and says, I wish I had the kind of conviction that there would be something that I would be willing to die for. But Paul's point here is not that some good could not come out of his actions. The point was, without love, they're not true acts of faith and service to the Lord or anyone else. I remind you of a passage of Scripture I have shared with you on many occasions. And listen carefully. Just write, write it down. Matthew seven twenty two and 23. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. He did not say you started out great and you were doing wonderful, but then you lost your way and you fell from grace, so get out. He said, I never knew you to begin with. Why? Because they may be trying to do something in his name, but they don't love him and they don't love the people they're serving. The reality is, folks, It is possible to be generous and self-sacrificing for all the wrong reasons. And I believe I can safely say I'm not the only one in this building today 
who has helped somebody somewhere in your life just to get rid of them. You know what I'm talking about? I don't want to deal with this right now, so here. Take it and go away. Leave me alone. I'm not proud of that. And I have prayed often within my life, please, Lord, don't let me be guilty of that ever again. Don't let me see people as obstructions to what I want to do and therefore pay them off to go away. And surely I'm not the only one in here today who has done something good for somebody because I wanted to feel good about myself. Or I wanted somebody to praise me for what a kind and wonderful person I am. Again, I don't like to admit that. I don't want to say I'm guilty of egotism like everybody else, but I'm pretty sure I'm not alone here. You see, there are a lot of people practicing philanthropy. There are a lot of people giving a lot of money away, millions of dollars away in some cases, if they get a tax write-off or if they get some sort of recognition. But take that out of the picture and some of those gifts will disappear. Folks, we must know that love should drive our self-denying actions not the desire for human praise. Again and again, back into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns his followers, do not do the things you see the Pharisees doing. Don't stand on a prayer on a corner and pray out loud. There's a lot of words so people say, what a holy man. He's saying, if you are doing something to get recognition here on earth, you want praise here, then that's what you're going to get. And that's all. Don't do it. You see, the love that flowed into our lives when Christ came, became Savior and Lord should be the driving force of any help we offer, any self-denying act we commit. We do so because we love God and we love the people he sent us to serve. Now, none of us do this perfectly. The reality is, folks, uh, we all, from time to time, have mixed motivations in what we do. But we must seek God's forgiveness when we do. If we stepped away from the truest motivation, love, God forgive us, God cleanse us, help us move further along. Now, I have one last major question for you to consider that is not on your fill-in-the-blank notes. So I would encourage you at the bottom of your notes to write the word, and I would put it in all capital letters, quotation marks, question mark, all the whole shebang. The question I have for you today is why? Why? Why did Paul say all of this? Why does he open up the discussion about love by saying what happens when we don't have love? Why? I believe because Paul was in line with the teachings of our Lord. Now, the folks who have been part of the costly commitment class, most of them have already heard this, but you guys need a refresher anyway. Jesus made two crucially important statements 
about what our love shows the world. And the first is found in John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Please notice that Jesus did not say, all men will know that you're my disciples if you speak with the tongues of men or angels or you prophesy or you make mountains move into the sea. He said, if you give everything away to the poor, if you sacrifice yourself, it doesn't tell the world you're my disciple. He said, they'll know you belong to me when you have love for one another. Listen carefully. Francis Schaeffer wrote that if we don't have love for one another, the world has a right to look us in the eye and say, you're a phony. If they do not see love in us, they have the right to say, you're not real. You don't believe what you say you do. Now, Schaefer also reminds us that Jesus didn't just talk about loving one another. He said we are to love our neighbors ourselves. He said we are to love our enemies. And so if love is not part of our lives, the world has every right in the world to look us in the eye, to look me and say, Danny Nance, you're a lot of things, but you are not a real Christian. If they don't see love in my life. And then Jesus prayed in John 17, his great High priestly prayer. And I want to share with you two verses from that. Chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. He said, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. I pray also. Do you get that? Do you realize that nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you? I'm praying for these men, and I'm praying for everyone who will believe because of their message. Every one of us here, in some shape, form, or fashion, became a child of God because we heard the wetness of the New Testament and these men saying, Jesus is Lord. And then here's the kicker. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He said, the world will believe that you, Father, sent me if they are one. That is, if they walk together in a fellowship of love and unity, then the world can see I'm who I claim to be. The world can see that I am the Christ the Son of the living God. If they are one, if they walk in unity and love with each other, if they walk in unity and love with us, you and me, the world will see. So Schaefer wrote also, if we do not walk in that fellowship of love, we may be the reason, please let this sink in, we may be the reason the lost world rejects Jesus as the Son of God. We may be the reason They say he can't be the one 
the Father sent to redeem us. Folks, it comes down to this. Without love, we are loud and often bitter noisemakers driving people away from Christ because without love, they have no reason to believe we know Christ. Without love, we are nothing without significance in a world that needs love. Without love, our actions are empty, empty of any eternal significance. And our actions may actually be a testimony to the world that even the God we serve is nothing. Today I'm asking you to commit yourself. Wherever you are, And I know I've got some loving people out here in this congregation. You have loved me. uh, Many of you embraced my wife when we first came here in an amazing way. I know that we are capable of love, but every person in this room is capable of a deeper love. So I'm asking you to commit yourself. God, give me the kind of life that I love, that others can see my love, experience my love, and know my love. Let that be your prayer today. Would you bow before God Almighty?